Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. And I'm Tim Cronin. Today we have two guests. Steve Homan, professional improvisational actor. You're the creative director, lead teaching artist of House of Improv. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's really great to be with you guys today. And we're also here with Olivia Espinoza, education director, teaching artist, also of the House of Improv. Welcome, Olivia. Thank you so much. Good morning. Could we start out with a description of what improv is? And in particular, I'm wondering, are there any rules to improv? Absolutely. So, you know, a lot of people think of improv and they might think either like stand-up comedy where somebody does a routine and stands in front of a microphone and tells jokes, or they might just think it's all made up. And actually it is all made up, but what it really is, is a group of actors working together to create a storyline, create characters and dialogue and a story all there in real time. And there's actually a set of rules that we use that we actually practice, even though we're not rehearsing a script. We're practicing those rules and those techniques over and over and over again so they become second nature to us. At your website, you mentioned that you are here to help lawyers, not just actors, but lawyers to sharpen their skills in the courtroom. Absolutely. Could you talk about just the general mission of your organization to start off? Yes. So we both have a background in acting and are theater artists for sure. But for the last eight years, we have been performing as witnesses in Roger Dodd's trial skills clinics and in our private work with lawyers. And really at the base of what we do as actors has been to tell the stories of people who need a voice, who need an advocate to tell their story. And so we feel that at the base of it, that's really what you do as lawyers. And we've noticed the crossover between improvisation and what you do in the courtroom because you are the actor performing sometimes without a script and on the spot. You are the director having to always see the big picture and you are the playwright creating the narrative sometimes on the spot and always having to adjust. And that's exactly what an improv actor does. So in our work in trial skills clinics and a crossover with improv, we noticed a lot of similarities that can really help lawyers. And I know that that's what you all do with this podcast too, is for attorneys to better serve their clients. And that's really what we are advocates for too. You know, I saw that you guys have been crossed over 1,200 times. Is that all in these trial skills clinics? Or have you served as experts in real life trials where you've been crossed also? No, this has all been in trial skills clinics, although I'm very confident that we could do a really good job <laughs> yeah, in the I courtroom so. if ever called upon. If I need an uh, improv expert in one of my cases. <laughs> and I can be really, really uh, squirrely and slippery too. So on cross, I'll definitely serve you really, really well. So it was all back in 2014. Roger Dodd came to town. I had no idea, you know, his background or anything like that. But he was looking for improv actors and through some connections, I wound up working for him for just a day and it wound up turning into working with him for about seven years and going around the country working as an improv actor. And then I brought Olivia in. We were kind of the dynamic duo working with him for some time. Yeah. And so even though we say we've been cross-examined that many times, it's as much as or more than any actual expert you'd get in the courtroom. But the difference between us is, you know, we want to use our powers for good. <laughs> when it comes to us as educators and actors, we know how to sort of really talk to attorneys about how some of these techniques that they use make us feel as witnesses, not just in terms of 
of control techniques and narrative, but really, you know, as theater artists, what's the story you're trying to tell? How can you really focus on the details and the words that are going to matter to your case and ultimately matter to your client? And the other thing we're good at too, is when you slip up, we're going to challenge you and we're going to make you pay for that. So you can learn from it. So you're actually getting really good simulated experience in different types of witnesses from the lay witness to the expert witness. Can you guys kind of bring us up to date on your background as educators and artists that led to you ending up doing the kind of work we're here talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So all my life, I've wanted to be an actor, went to school for it at San Diego State. That's where Steve and I met. And I taught playwriting in the classroom and in juvenile hall and foster youth group homes. And it was something that I realized, like I said, you know, there are stories that need to be told and marginalized voices. And for me, that's where it comes from the most important part. I came to improv much later in my actor life. I was always very fearful of it. I was a scripted actor, never wanted to let it go. But improv helped me, even as an actor, get over fear. I was very fearful of making a mistake and had a lot of self-doubt that would chase me around in my head, whether at an audition or at a performance. And improv helped me overcome a lot of that so that I could really focus on the story of what was important to be told at that moment. Mine's a little little different. I always dabbled in improv all the way back into high school, and I always very much enjoyed it. I was always drawn to it. Like Olivia said, we met doing theater at San Diego State University. I worked a little bit in the arts outside of college, and I got frustrated, and I was like, I don't need to work in the arts anymore. So I actually spent five years, and uh, don't hold this against me, I did spend five years working as a claims adjuster for auto claims. I absolutely am going to hold that against you. (laughs) (laughs) As you should. But what that did was, first of all, it made me see the game. It made me understand that this is not about justice all the time. This is about a game that's being played and a way to get things done, I guess, you know, and not always for the better. First couple of years, I was like, hey, I can help people out. But I slowly learned over those five years that, okay, I can't do much at all. But I What I did take away from that was thousands of interviews and investigations and talking to people that were in the middle of kind of trauma and crisis in their own legal matters. I got so burnt out that I got rid of that and I realized that I needed to give myself fully to my art. And since 2011, I've been working as a professional improviser and teaching artist. When I started working with Roger, it really connected, it really made sense. And I understood like the techniques he was using. I I didn't know it at the time, but there was something in me. I was like, oh my God, these are the same exact techniques that improvisers use to quickly create a narrative and a story and to control everything that's going around us and to speak a a language and control the story so we could react to the audience. And it took a a number of years working, not only with the work that we're doing as witnesses, as faux witnesses in his cross-examination clinics, but we started creating our own improv program based on that crossover between improv and basically the Posner-Dodd method of the three rules of cross-examination, leading questions only one fact at a time and going from a general place to a specific place because those are general storytelling techniques and Posner and Dodd came around those and basically we're using them same way that improvisers were using them. Hopefully that makes sense as far as how this kind of came together. Yeah. So for the last, well, since the pandemic specifically, we've been focusing on our programs for lawyers and really being able to hone those exact techniques that you need in the courtroom that actually are from improv that help solidify those. Can you give us a couple or handful of examples of some of those techniques? 
Absolutely. So basically there's three rules of improv. The first one is acceptance. So acceptance basically means we're on stage with other actors. It can feel like you're out in the middle of the ocean, but you don't have a boat. You don't have floaties. You don't have anything to keep you out of the water. The only thing that can save you and keep you dry and keep you safe is your partner's ideas. It's that kind of urgency that we have when we're listening to each other, when we're on stage looking for another idea. There's no perfect idea. There's just the next idea that's really important. So we're really focused on what's going on in the moment. The next one is, you may have heard this before, is yes and. Well, it sounds a lot similar to acceptance, right? We're saying yes. Well, there's the second part is and. And in improv, we mean like you got to bring your own ideas. You got to further the story. In the courtroom, though, we think of it as you're listening really intently to your witness and what's going on around you. And the end part is where you pivot and drive it in the direction that you want. But this is all only possible with the third rule, which is active listening. If we're not really good active listeners, we can't do one and two. We're going to miss a bunch of really good opportunities to take advantage of situations in the courtroom. When we think about how this connects to Roger Dodd's techniques or the Posner-Dodd techniques of leading questions only, well, in improv scenes, especially the theater I come from, we need to create a narrative as quickly as possible and we don't want to dilly-dally. So we don't allow ourselves to ask questions, at least for the first five to six lines of a scene, because then that forces everyone to bring information into the scene and drive a narrative and create it quickly so we can find out the who, what, and where. And then if we think about one fact at a time, well, in improv, we only want to bring out one idea at a time because we want to make sure it's digestible for the other actors on stage, but also for the audience. Just like one fact at a time in the courtroom, you want to make it digestible and control your witness and make them answer the question and the fact that you're talking about, but also it makes it digestible for your fact finders, for your judge, and also for your jury. And then going from a general place to a specific place. Well, Stories are like that. We start out with the who, what, where, and then we work off into the conflict. And then in improv scenes, we don't always get to the end because they're pretty quick and we just find a funny place to stop. But a story goes until the focus of the story, which is your resolution or the solution of a story. And the biggest rule that we really focus on when it comes to the crossover between improv and what y'all do in the courtroom is the yes and. That is where constructive cross really comes into play what the witness is saying, you're listening to it. And even yes anding in the improv respect will actually help when it comes to other techniques that Posner and Dodd use, which is spontaneous looping. So that's something that is also a big focus on what we do. I'm wondering if you can make it more vivid by suggesting what you noticed about what most traditional lawyers do, where you cringe and you think, oh, they're missing opportunities. What's going wrong where your method can step in and make things better? One of the biggest things that we hear from lawyers is, I thought I was listening, but I was just waiting for the witness to stop talking so that I could start talking. That's what my wife always tells me. <laughs> Uh-oh. Well, come to our class. I can help too. <laughs> Not just in the courtroom, but beyond. I think it's really about knowing that, okay, yes, maybe you asked an open-ended question. You didn't stick to the leading questions only. You asked an open-ended question and now, oh my God, the witness is running on you and they are talking forever. And Instead of tuning out, it's about tuning in. It's actively listening. And you never know what gem they might give you at the end of the sentence that could help enhance your narrative and that you can loop to either, well, 
looping, I can actually talk about that too. Looping actually can help as a control technique, but it can also help steer your narrative as well. And so there are plenty of opportunities, even if you do mess up to actively listen and turn the focus back around to your narrative. What is loop? You've sent, mentioned looping a few times. Can you expound upon that? It's basically where you're looking for a word or a phrase that the witness gives you that can work for your argument. So what you do is you absolutely as accurately as possible use one word or a small phrase, whatever they said, you want to take that and then you can plug it into your next question. So if I said to Olivia, the car was blue and she said, yes, but she started running. Yeah, the car was blue, but you know, the hood was all messed up and the bumper was coming off. It was really dilapidated. It was really dilapidated and you noticed it right away. So I used her last words, it's really dilapidated, but I could have used any of those things. And then I plugged it into my question and then used another leading question to help drive that. But it does a few different things, the, the spontaneous loop to a witness. So if you're using it on us because we're running and you use a spontaneous loop, our words back to us, it can make us certainly feel heard as a witness. It can make us feel validated because you're listening to our words. You're not tuning out and you're not negating them. Probably makes you more agreeable to the next question. Yes, Mm -hmm. absolutely. And on the other hand, if you are very well actively listening and you use something that we might've said that kind of just jumped out of our mouth without even thinking about it, especially as an expert witness, you can beat us with our words because maybe we said something that actually wasn't favorable or was something we didn't mean, whatever it might be, it could actually very well be used as a control technique as well. Especially for you guys, when you're probably dealing with expert doctors, radiologists, orthopedists, and all these guys, they're going to want to tell you about all the science and all the medicine and how smart they are. And they're going to go on and on and on because they're going to want to steer that, you know, with all their knowledge about how their theory of the case of the injury or whatever is the right one. But they're going to talk and talk and talk and you can shut them up really well, especially when you find a little gem in what they tell you and you whack them over the head with that and you start plugging that word or phrase over and over and over again into your narrative, into things that support what you're trying to say. It is not pleasant. It's happened to us as being, you know, mock witnesses. And it's not a fun thing to get beat up with your own words. It happened the other day, actually. We were teaching and we're playing a police officer at the scene who didn't necessarily write down who the witness was and where they were. And Steve threw out as the police officer, facts bring justice. And it got looped around later when the lawyer looped it back and said, facts bring justice. And you didn't write down the fact where the witness was was. And you didn't write down the fact of where, you know, all of the specifics that the officer didn't do that were facts that could not bring justice in this particular case. So because Steve threw that out and the lawyer was listening, it got brought back around for Steve as the police officer to be very beaten up with his own words. I hated it, but I was so proud. (laughs) (laughs) So is this primarily for cross-examination or does it apply to voir dire? Does it apply to direct? Oh, absolutely. Really, when we think about the concept of like yes and and spontaneous loop, these are wonderful, especially for Fortier and for direct too. I mean, especially when you can't really use leading questions with your own witness, by looping, you can kind of let them know like, hey, 
that's a great place to go. Let's go back to talking about what you just talked about right there instead of going off into a place because you're in less control. These techniques really work well. Going back to Vordier is when you're trying to elicit information out of potential jurors, looping what they said and then bringing it to another question, you know, using an open-ended question to like draw more out, you're going to get a lot more information out of them because they're going to feel like, oh, he's really interested or she's really interested in what I'm saying. Right. And I love talking about myself. So let me tell you more. Right. And even validates what they've already said. You can take, I think, what one panel member says and then go off of what that panel member says to rephrase your question to the rest of the panel. And it's like one of them is asking Looping the question with to the rest multiple of all people. Of, right. Yeah. Instead of you're asking yeah. a question. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And I would say too that, you know, things like one fact at a time, general to specific also help with your opening and closing. It's really about what is digestible to your audience. And certainly in improv, we have an audience, but you all have the judge and jury. They are your fact finders. And so rules like that can certainly help you in opening and closing when it comes to creating a narrative that is digestible for your audience so that they don't get lost so that they're with you and feel a part of the story. We have a thing that we talk about when it comes to one fact at a time and how it makes us feel not just as witnesses, but even as audience members. It's like watching a movie when it's one fact at a time. It's like watching a movie like Jaws or something like, you know, the director shows you the scared faces of the people on the beach, the splashes in the water where you don't know where they're coming from, the blood in the water, the screams, all of these facts are building. And the audience has created something much more scary and horrific than you could ever show them because they are putting the facts together. You're putting it in their hands until, of course, at the very end of Jaws, when you show the actual shark and you see the dead eyes and the blood that's fake, right? But up until then, they're creating a much more elaborate, detailed picture that they now own and that they can't let go of. And that's really what we see is one fact at a time, general to specific, how it can help in a much bigger picture more than just in a cross-examination. Yeah. When you bring those details together, it's going to be so much more powerful than anything you could say instead of saying, oh, this person was a terrible father. You know, you could say they didn't allow the kids to have friends. They had a strict rule in the house of no kids from the neighborhood inside the house. They had strict rule about never watching TV. They had strict rule about only eating rice. You know, whatever those rules were that they had in the house or those disciplinary things, that would tell us a much better and stronger story about who this person is as a bad father and lead the other people to be like, if that's true, I can only imagine what else is true. In fact, I'm already putting it through my mind what other things they probably did as a terrible father. And that's the power of telling a story that's much more engaging and inviting your listeners in to be a part of that story, to be a part of coming up with the conclusion. That's what we do in improv all the time. That's basically the idea is that moment of discovery that you're hoping to elicit in your listeners. I have a note here on the topics to talk with you guys. The concept of lies versus believed truth. What are you talking about there? Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting parts of what we've learned. Just to set it up first, it's really about the fact that in our background as actors and improv actors, we know that regardless of what we do and the character that we create, it's important to be authentic and true to life for the audience to stick with you, but also to create a solid foundation of a narrative. And to be honest, in the witnesses that we've played, lay witnesses and expert witnesses, we know that nine times out of 10, 
they are not lying to you on purpose, even though it might feel (laughs) like it. They really aren't. I promise you. Most of them are not out to mess with you. You don't know our witness. Yeah. yeah, It depends on the case. (laughs) We came away with this belief, or I came away with this belief from all my time working in insurance. And Coming from the place for the first couple of years, I get really frustrated talking to people because I'm like, oh, you see the facts in front of me. You're like, this person's full of garbage and full of BS. And by the time I started realizing, I'm like, these people actually believe it. And when we go back and I went back into working full time in the yards, it made me realize that no one wants to be the villain. Everybody thinks that there's no possible way I could have been that negligent. I could have done that bad thing. I was not the bad person. Now, obviously, there are certain people who are just going to lie through their teeth, and there are those people out there. But in the large part, people construct and they convince themselves that it happened differently. It happened in a way that they can live with it. That's more of like a lay witness thing. And in an expert witness, especially when you're talking about your doctors, and that was the best thing as far as these last couple of years of playing a lot of expert witnesses and trying to figure out and construct a way to make that work. And it reminds me of my time in insurance where you have to construct a way you can live with yourself at night and sleep and feel like you're doing the right thing. And I think a lot of these expert witnesses, they find the information that helps them construct like a rigid thought pattern. And and you always see every expert has like a limit to their flexibility. And it's usually not very flexible at all because they put it all into having one ideology that's tied to some journal paper or some study. It's always these studies showed that X, Y, and Z, and that's what I'm going to stick with. And that's why I get hired over and over again. But I truly believe that they believe that that is the truth. I mean, if you have an expert or somebody who's just lying and knows they're lying, you're never going to get them to stop telling the story they're telling. If it's a believed truth, maybe if you present it the right way to them, they can start to see that they weren't looking at things the right way and come around to your side. And one of my recent trials was a trucking case and I had the defendant truck driver on the stand and she had her own daughter in the truck and did something negligent. It's a weird case, but her employer trucking company's on the hook for it. And she believed the accident happened a certain way that let her not feel as bad about what she did. And she needed to believe that in her head, and I get it. But then by presenting simple facts like tire marks and stuff on the stand with the jury, she eventually was like, I see what you're saying. You're right. It must have happened that way. And that means it's totally my fault. I just must have changed it in my head. But yeah, it was a believed truth because she needed it to be. Yeah. Absolutely. And to be honest, you know, we've played experts that – are so adamant that are never going to, you know, do what your witness did, which is sort of admit to it. But guess what? If you are doing it one fact at a time, your audience is getting it. Your fact finders are getting it and they are seeing the holes in the story of that witness. That's something that you can't fully gauge in the moment, but there's a trust factor to that, that you're telling that story and it's being shown very clearly. Yeah. I feel always feel with the expert witnesses, your medical doctors, your police and all that kind of stuff. Like they all have that rigid point where they can't go beyond thinking outside the box and all that, like I said. So it's really about discovering their tell, discovering where does that line end and how do you exploit it, like Olivia said, one fact after another, one leading question after another, to expose to your fact finders 
that it's not about getting your expert to agree with you. It's about exposing them and doing it in a conversational way so people can hear and understand you. So what about the three rules of cross-examination? Tell us about those. What are those rules and how do you see them sort of fitting into the improv techniques? Yeah. So leading questions only, just taking that one for now, it's really about being in the driver's seat of your narrative. If you have an open-ended question, just like an improv, you're putting the narrative into that other person's hands. So leading questions only actually as witnesses, if you stick to leading questions, it gets us on what Steve calls the yes train, where we're just responding yes to every leading question. It's a great way to instantly not just control us, but to start to get us on a pattern to where we can let go a little bit. As witnesses, we can certainly be nervous. And so that allows us to feel guided and to feel more at ease because all we're answering is yes. Yeah. And it keeps everybody focused on what you want to talk about. So when you do that, you're in control of what's being introduced. You're in way more control of the topics. You're not asking a question and throwing up a prayer, hoping that they answer answer the way way that you want. I find that there's rare exceptions to that. Like if it's an expert, because we've always deposed the expert typically before we're at trial. And if I know there's something they really want to say and they're going to say it, sometimes I'll throw out an open-ended question and let themselves walk where I know they're going to walk themselves into the corner. So the jury doesn't think I forced them into the corner. And if they don't answer the way they did in the depot, then I pull out the depot and say, well, here's what you said in your depot. But yeah, I mean, generally... I stick to leading questions. You know, and this is the whole thing. And this is the world of improv too. There's the rules, you know, like we talk about the rules of everything, but there's always exceptions. There's always exceptions. There's always strategical advantages to not following the rules sometimes, but it's being disciplined enough in those techniques that when you deviate from them, it's done consciously. We talk about word choice a lot when we're talking about looping and connecting it to your next question using and instead of but. We really drill that in in our courses. Stay away from but, but really what we mean is know that looping what somebody says and saying, but this other thing, just knowing that has an effect that is negating or qualifying what the witness just told you. So when you do that, be aware. And I think that's what you're basically saying right there is these are great techniques, but they're not always needing to be dogmatically followed every single time. Second one is one fact at a time. And I mean, I get that. The more things you throw at them, the easier it is for them to pick one and disagree with your whole question. Exactly. And it's also confusing for your fact finders as well. When you load in too much information, it's not just the witness that's like, I don't know. I'm just going to answer this part because that's the part that I last heard or that I like the most. But it's also loading up too much for a witness. And I know this to be a fact from being performed in front of thousands of audiences When you're just up there just going off and throwing out all kinds of information, everyone gets a glazed over look and you've lost the audience. It's just too much. When you do one fact at a time, just like you said, it keeps everything controlled, but it also keeps it very digestible. And on the other, conversely, something like a conclusion, you know, we've done like Bill is your friend. Well, Bill is your friend is actually a conclusion. And depending on my story, I could negate that very easily. Well, you know, we're not really that good of friends. You know, we met a couple times. It wasn't really that big of a deal. Well, if Bill is your friend is important to your narrative, it's a conclusion. So it's really about 
putting out the facts to allow your fact finders to show that they actually were friends. Exactly. Like you could say, uh, you have over 10,000 texts between each other over a two-year period. You, met you went to each other's weddings. weddings. Yeah. Uh, you uh, were in a bowling league. You met once a week. Show, don't tell. Exactly. It's exactly right. And it actually happens too, to be honest with you. This happened the other day as we were playing an expert witness and attorney kept saying, wouldn't you agree? Well, if I'm an expert witness and I hear, wouldn't you agree? and you're the attorney and I'm the expert, I don't want to agree to anything that you might put out there that I don't want to agree to as an expert. So even things like, wouldn't you agree sometimes we can take as a conclusion, especially if you know it's something that we want to negate. And it has a weird effect. Like sometimes even if we say, you know, we say yes to that question, because you've said that, it's like a challenge. It's like that. I'm being <laughs> paid not to agree. Yes, exactly. <laughs> You're reminding me what I'm getting paid to do, and it's not agree with you. And I'm going to parse every single little word that you say and look for a reason to fight with you. So it's things like that. You know, like you guys said, it's about the show don't tell. I mean, the more you do that, the more you keep your witness in control and keep the situation under control. The third of your rules of cross you have here is general to specific, which I think people can understand. But can you give a good example? of it? Yeah. So we play a game in our improv clinic where we, a attorney has to drive us to guess a clue. And so really, if you start out generally to specific, first of all, as witnesses, it helps us feel like there's no pressure. You're a human being. Yeah. You get that's, <laughs> you, that's as general as it gets. Very general, You're right? You're a human being. Whatever that might be that is so general to your narrative. It actually, first of all, allows us to feel comfortable. You're starting in a place where it's easy to agree, no big deal. But what you're actually doing is it's like the game 20 questions. It always starts with, is it bigger than a bread box? Well, depending on the answer, it eliminates a lot of possibilities. So not only are you starting at a general place that is agreeable to your witness, but you're actually beginning to eliminate possibilities, kind of like if you look at it like a funnel, starting general to specific, and you're slowly funneling them down to a place where they are boxed in, where they can no longer wiggle out because they've already agreed to all the bigger stuff. And when it comes to the details, you're slowly defining each and every one along the way. Yeah. It's just basically putting the foundational chapters there to just get them to a place where even if they said no to the focus of your cross, it'd be obvious to your fact finders. We had a group the other day where there was a police report and the lawyer was saying, oh, you're accurate with your reports or you think the facts are or, important. Yeah, the facts are important. An investigation is important to collect facts, you know, basically setting up like you're a good police officer, right? You're diligent, you do the right things. And so when it came down to exposing what was missing from the police report, it really exposed the hypocrisy of that police officer. She did a very good job of going through step by step every detail that was missing from that police report. Yeah. And so ultimately it eliminated the possibilities of him wiggling out and saying, no, I did do it when really in actuality he didn't because of the way that she funneled it from general to specific. From your website, I see that you offer workshops for lawyers. And I'm wondering in particular how those techniques that you teach on improv can help lawyers who are managing stress in the courtroom or worrying about messing up by loosening up and trying some of your techniques. Yeah, that's the biggest thing we hear at the very beginning of all of our workshops. We say, what keeps you from being mindfully present in your work? And the top three things that we hear are stress, managing stress in and out of the courtroom, 
a fear of messing up and worrying about what to say next. And really, ultimately, it's because of the care that all of these lawyers have for their clients. Somebody's life is potentially at stake. And so that's really the base of all of the worries. But improv, just like I said, for me, even as a scripted actor, helped me get over a lot of fear. Because what we talk about the most is that it's about the recovery okay, maybe you did mess up. Maybe you might've said the wrong thing or think that you did. It's about recovering quickly and getting over it so that you can get back on track. Traditional improv training is all about conquering fear and reducing anxiety. It works really, really well just about for anybody. And what we did is because of our very interesting you know, background, we just happened to putting all this together at the right place at the right time. We were able to kind of take out all the nonsense, you know, gibberish and pantomime and things like that out of traditional improv training and really focus on the things that are going to be really impactful for a lawyer. And that's really what we're talking about is getting resilient. And the way that we do that is through a lot of exercises that force you to have fun, even when you're screwing up and we screw up a lot. We force you to screw up and we force you to screw up over and over again And it becomes a natural thing that you accept that I'm going to probably screw up, but I'm not going to dwell on it and I'm going to move on. And then it's not really a screw up that much. Maybe it even is an opportunity for me to discover something new, but I'm focused in the moment and less thinking about myself. And I'm thinking about everything that's going on around me. I'm freeing up myself. I'm because I'm reducing fear and anxiety, I'm freeing up myself to be super mindfully present to everything that's going on around me and being okay when things go a little sideways so I can correct it. That's where some of these other techniques come into play too. When you're cross or you're direct or anything goes off-road, it's just off-roading and you can steer the ship right back onto the road or steer your cross right back onto the road and get to the where you want to go. So it's really about teaching flexibility. And of course, actively listening. I mean, you can't do many of these techniques, especially the spontaneous loop without first listening. And so that's really the important thing also that we make sure that is infused in all of our exercises is stretching that muscle to be open to even hearing things that you might not want to hear because again, opportunities are really what it's about. And these aren't skills or a mindset. You can just read some simple rules and then you got it, right? Like it's something you have to work on, develop the skills and develop a comfort level over time, I imagine, which is what the workshops are for. For Yeah, absolutely. It's you don't get in shape by reading a book about weightlifting or about that would be really nice, though. I know it would be awesome. (laughs) But I mean, there's a reason why like golfers have swing coaches and, you know, even actors, professional actors are always being trained. They're always because these are muscles that need to be exercised. And that's really what the idea was behind this. It's the idea and the mindset that, hey, let us be your personal trainer. You know, there's things that we can't touch, like as far as like the big picture part of your arguments and all of that kind of stuff, but we can teach hand-to-hand combat. That's what we're really, really good at. We're teaching you how to react and respond and to free up your bandwidth so you can be fully present when you're in the courtroom or with a client or in a deposition, any of those things that are going on in your private practice. And as Steve said, like we can give you a consequence-free space that is safe where you have other lawyers, other people in your field or even outside 
side, you know, PI lawyers, defense attorneys, everything like that, that we've come across. But it's really about giving you the safe space to actively try these tools and see how they work without the consequences of being in the courtroom and without your client's life at stake. Before we wrap up, how can attorneys find to participate in the improv programs that you have designed for lawyers? Is there a website they can go to to try to sign up for your workshops? Yes, absolutely. So our website is houseimprov.com and that's H-A-U-S-I-M-P-R-O-V.com, House Improv. And we do, we have our introductory signature workshop. It's four hours that ultimately all the exercises lead to attorneys doing a spontaneous improvised improvised cross-examination that is very, very fun. But we also have ongoing classes. We know, again, the importance of building muscle and having muscle memory when it comes to these tools and techniques. So we do have ongoing classes as well. And we've also most recently done a lot of private coaching, even when it comes to oral arguments or opening statements. Those are essentially monologues in our world. And so we do a lot of private coaching as well. As well as witness prep too. We've been doing witness prep. So even working with people who are going through a very traumatic time when they're preparing to be cross-examined and going to court and getting in the mindset of feeling a little bit less anxiety and feeling a little bit more disciplined about what they're about to do. Yeah. And if you're game for it, we actually have some takeaway exercises for you and your audience. Happy to teach them to practice some of these things at home because we know it's not easy, but it's also a way to do it in a fun way to kind of hone these skills on your own. Yeah. What are some of those exercises since you bring it up? All right. Well, the first one that this is an exercise that's about looping and steering, like looping the words that you're hearing and then driving it into a new direction. It's called the vacation story. And it's basically this. We're going to say that we went somewhere. So we'll say we went to the beach. So whoever starts out, you get your partners. And would one of you guys like to join us in this game? Tim, it's you. (laughs) Tim. Tim. So Tim, it's going to go in this order. It'll be me, then Olivia, then you, then me, Olivia, then than you. So I'm going to start off and say, we went to the beach. Now, Olivia's going to loop what I said. We went to the beach and then she's going to say, and, and then put in a new detail, just one new detail about our time at the beach. So let me start off. We went to the beach. We went to the beach and we brought our towels. We went to the beach and we brought our towels and I still got sand all over myself. <laughs> Perfect. And you only have to loop the last thing you heard. You don't have oh, to loop okay. towels. Yeah, you got, got it. it. Yep. You still got sand on you and we sprayed you down with some seawater. We sprayed you down with some seawater and then all of the seaweed stuck to your body. And all of the seaweed stuck to my body. So I went into the ocean. You went into the ocean and you saw a shark. You saw a shark and you started screaming for your life. I started screaming for my life and I also peed myself. (laughs) (laughs) You also peed yourself and it caused the shark to swim away. It caused the shark to swim away and there were never any more sharks at that beach. There were never any more sharks at that beach. And then me and my friends did shots of tequila. (laughs) Yeah, great ending to that story. So basically what it does is it just gets you an easy, you could do this with anybody, you could do it with your kids. If you're on a road trip with your family, this is a great way to just practice listening to somebody else, trying to do it as accurate as possible. And you did a wonderful job at that, Tim, using that word or phrase and then driving it in a new direction, just exercising that muscle of listening and applying it to a new idea. 
And then we have one other exercise that you can do too. That's another active listening exercise is one that we call last letter, first letter. This is that moment that's going to help you or that game that's going to help you when we talked about a witness running on you and your instinct is to just tune out and get loaded up with your next question. This is about listening to the very last part of what they have to say, no matter how long it is, because ultimately it's something, it could be an opportunity. You could use it for your next question. So this is a great game for that. Yeah, absolutely. So what is going to happen is Olivia and I are going to have a conversation and whatever the last letter of the last word that I say is going to be the first letter of the first word that Olivia says. So we have to kind of listen all the, like Olivia said, listen all the way through and hopefully be decent spellers to <laughs> apply it to our next sentence. But to get started, we'll need a topic suggestion from you guys. Sports cars. Sports cars. Okay. Perfect. Here we go. Olivia, I'm ready to buy a new sports car. Really? I mean, I kind of like our, you know, Volkswagen bug. Gosh, it's really breaking down quite a lot. True, but you know, it was in my family for at least 20 years. So you're saying that we have to use a broken car instead of getting a state-of-the-art vehicle? Sound yeah. works too. Onomatopoeias are part of language, so uh, it's all good. <laughs> but that's a fun exercise that you can do that's just super easy. Once again, anybody, it doesn't have to be another lawyer, it can be anybody, but this is a great active listening exercise and you can do it all the time. It gets you out of being sort of robotic too with your answers and trying to just keep it conversational so that even if somebody listening in, they wouldn't know that this is the game that you're playing, right? We've worked with some attorneys who are very rigid and very robotic. And so this is a great way to kind of get you in the mode of thinking conversationally and not so mechanical. Well, Steve Holman and Olivia Espinoza, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great conversation. It's Thank been you so wonderful much. Being wonderful here. Thank you. you. Great. You're with House Improv. And again, that's H-A-U-S. For anyone who wants to know more about you, they can find you easily on Google with that spelling. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. And I'm Tim Cronin. See you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast and subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.